There's so much I want to say about this. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And in a lot of churches around this country, the unspoken hurt and shame is this issue. There are people leading churches right now that are afraid someone will find out they paid for an abortion back when they were in college. Or they themselves had an abortion. And so there's this huge, heavy shame that acts as a barrier to the abundant life. And without getting into a sermon on this, we want you to know that we understand we don't need to come out and say 62 million children have been murdered in the last 40-some years. Because that just adds to, especially without context, the sense of shame and guilt. But what we can say is this. We stand for life fully. This is not Sanctity of Human Birth Sunday. Did you notice that? It's life. It's about the sanctity, the holiness of every human life. And I know this gets into divisive issues and such. Here's here's what we want you to know. I dream of a world where that 15-year-old who's pregnant doesn't even think about abortion because she's going to be so taken care of. That it's not just a bunch of people saying, hey, you know that baby inside you is valuable, but she feels valued. And I love the words of that young man who's Down syndrome, who said last year, he said, you know, I'm I'm not trying to make abortion illegal. I'm trying to make it unthinkable. And that's our heart. I've lost friends over this issue because I just simply, it's a personal issue to me. As many of you know, my nephew Adrian, who's now 44 years of age, and he's biracial, and the deacons of our church visited my home when I was a little guy, 13 years old, and They told my dad that my sister Sherry had to have an abortion because they couldn't have that black baby born. And I've never seen my father angrier as he chased those three men out of our house. And I think about Adrian. And, you know, today he's a business owner in Portland, Oregon, and he has three wonderful children. And just, oh, man. And we want you to know that if you've had an abortion, you pay, you have this shame that's just there, and you think it's normal, there's healing to be found. Today, we have one of our community groups led by Amber Laris called Warriors for Life. And if you'd love to be a part of the redemptive story of God in your life, maybe, maybe this is not a personal issue for you, but you care about making it a world. I have a dream that I want to I make a world where that, that girl who gets pregnant, she, she knows she's got options, right? She's, she's going to be loved and cared for. And they're going to be out at the East Kiosk today, Warriors for Life. Amber will be out there, and if you'd love to join the redemptive story of God in the life of so many people, then we would love for you to be a part of that.
Uh, thank you for listening to that because we know this issue is so personal, so very personal. And uh, the gospel still works at the deepest levels of our being. And we look forward to the story God writes through us. Right now, we also want you to be aware that today we're highlighting our east region. Our east region here is Bellbrook and Waynesville and Xenia and Jamestown and Huber Heights and Beaver Creek. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a few others, but that east region uh, is uh, led by a number of people. One is our regional pastor, Pete Creamer. But right now, would you guys welcome two of our city pastors who are volunteer city pastors. They are taking on the mantle of creating systems of community care connection. So would you guys welcome up here to the stage, Rachel Bain and Rob Turner. Would you guys welcome them? <laughs> Amen. Thank you so much, guys. And what we're doing, if this is your first weekend, we're just every weekend, we're going to let you get to know people because we know this regional division thing can just be a cold structure, but it's people who are leading this charge. And we want to create this vast net of connection, community, and care around our city. And people like Rachel and Rob have said, here am I, Lord, send me, make me a vessel, Make, use me, use my story interwoven with other people's stories. As we say around here, you know, every story could be a movie or a book. It's the truth, isn't it? It's the truth. And Rob and Rachel have said, hey, we want our story to be included in the story of God through the, through the outpost, the lampstand of Southbrook in its ministry to the greater Dayton area. So as we've been doing, let's bow our heads and we're going to specifically pray over Rachel and Rob, but over the East region, Okay. So, Father, today we pray that you raise up event planners and storytellers and prayer leaders and city pastors uh, under the great leadership of Pete Creamer, and uh, you just raise them up because we, you know, we know in your word you said that if you ask anything according to my will, you will have what you ask. When our prayers are aligning prayers with what your heart is, you say, oh, sit back and watch. Sit back and watch. And right now, I join with Rachel and Rob and the whole East Region team to say, God, make us vessels. Make us vessels of connection, community, and care to the broken and the hurting, to the lost in the East Region of our, of our greater Dayton area. I pray that you continue to redeem the story of Rob and Rachel's lives and that you continue to use their gifts I thank you for people like them, their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray you preserve them physically, emotionally, spiritually, that you'll put a protection around their lives and their families. And I pray that, that they look back and they see, oh my gosh, look what God, only God, only God could have done this. We look forward to years down the road when we look back and say, all it took was a yes. All it took was a yes to say, okay, God, now do your work. Because that's for 2,000 years now in this redemptive story of Jesus, that's all it takes is someone out here saying with Rob Turner and Rachel Bain, yes, God. Yes, I'm yours. Make me a vessel. And in Jesus' name, the Southbrook people who are watching online and sitting here in these rooms right now, in Jesus' character and by his will, everybody said, 
Amen. Let's give it up for Rachel and Rob. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I was thinking about, uh, you know, I was looking, I was, I was cleaning out an old, uh, you know how we do things at the beginning of the year and cleaning out an old uh, um, storage area in our basement, uh, uh, the part that's, the small part that's not taken over by my memorabilia collection. And uh, I was looking at an old scrapbook, my senior year in high school, and uh, just brought back so many memories. It was 10 years ago. And... Um, uh, and just thinking back to the sweet and sour reality of sports in my life. My dad was a very good football player, and it's no mystery now as I lead Players Box to realize why I chose basketball. I, was, I grew up in a basketball school, and it wasn't my dad's sport. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm not exactly built like an, a college football player. And so I chose a different sport, a different, and I just fell in love in junior high with basketball. I just fell in love with it. And I worked and worked and worked, and, and I got to my sophomore year, and I had improved, and I was on the varsity, and I discovered this sweetness turned into sour real quickly, as not everybody was as enthusiastic about a little, little sophomore being on the varsity as I was. And I remember sitting in my room one dark night and saying, I'm done, I'm quitting, and my dad comes in my room and he says, if you let those sons of SOBs get you down now, they will get you down the rest of your life. It's sons of Baptists is what he meant by that. <laughs> and, uh, and it was sour. It was, it, was, it was a time where I, 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 wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. And from that time on, there was this weaving of sweet and sour through that journey. Today, I look back on all that and realize God never wastes a crisis. You know, I, I use the strength every day in my life, the grit that came from those times. Anybody here relate to that? I use the grit that was developed in those days, every single day of my life. I use the sweet parts, too. God uses that. And today we come to a part of Revelation that is a sweet and sour section. Some of you are early enough in your faith where forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and, and God's words have come alive to me, and it is so sweet. It is so sweet. How many of you know what's coming down the pike? There are going to be sour times. There are going to be sour times. And today we're going to get into the reality of following Jesus and living life and being married. And everything you pursue in life is going to have a sweet and sour reality to it. And that was certainly true in the first century. In about 90 AD, when John, exiled on the island of Patmos, received this revelation of Jesus he was experiencing the sour parts of following Jesus, along with the sweet. Along with the sweet. For many, many followers in that area, it was really sour. Because they were being persecuted, being followers of Christ was, was not something that they got applause for, or people weren't sympathetic to their convictions that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. 
And the message of Revelation is real simple. Those who are faithful will overcome. It's said in a bunch of different ways, many times over. You stay faithful, it is going to pay off. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him and stay faithful to him. And John uses a mechanism that is common in that day. From about 200 BC to 100 AD, this thing called apocalyptic literature was very common because it gave people hope in in the genre of imagery. The word apocalyptic simply means to unveil, to unveil. And so what John does is he says, I know all of this awful stuff is happening, but I'm gonna unveil Jesus into this. I'm going to show the Jesus who is in the midst of your struggle and your suffering. And the question, just to do a little quick review here, that you have to look at when you ask yourself, what in the world does Revelation mean? Is what did John intend his churches to understand? As he used this form of writing, which was quite common in that day. What did John intend his hearers to understand? See, this is really important because what happens today, and it ends up selling a lot of books, is that, well, Revelation was something that the people who originally wrote it really couldn't understand it, but we can now because we live in the last days. And that notion sells a lot of books and actually couldn't be more wrong. Actually, we're the ones who have to close the communication gap because it's written in a different culture and a different time. But John's hearers actually would have understood this quite easily because they understood the genre. They understood the symbolism. It didn't mean literally 7, 12, 6, 6, 6. It didn't literally mean these things. They were symbolic. Let's say that COVID is done. Can you envision a day when COVID is over with? Yeah, it's over with. That's right. Boy, not many of you are excited about COVID being over with, are you? Yeah, so COVID's over, and I decide I'm going to go on a sabbatical, and I, here's, here's what my first choice of sabbatical would be. I'm going to tour on my sabbatical all major league ballparks this year. I'm going to go to every major league baseball park, and my celebration and is going to be going to major league baseball parks, and when that's over, I'm going to go to every NFL stadium, and that'll be my year sabbatical. You think, oh, wait a minute, aren't pastors go to, supposed to go to the Holy Land or something? No, my, but while I'm on my sabbatical, I write a letter to Southbrook because I care about Southbrook. How do you think I'd write that letter? Do you think I'd write that letter symbolically so that you guys can't get it, but 2,000 years from now, some people are really going to find this letter relevant? Because they're going to live in the days when this letter's fulfillment has come. And they're going to, what would you think? John was a pastor like I am. I, I have a very vested interest in you in this church. I mean, I might have given my heart and soul to this place. Uh, do you think I'm going to write a letter that can't be understood by you? No, I'm going to write a letter that can be understood by you. John was writing a letter that could be understood by his original hearers. Our task is to understand the style in which he wrote it and then go, okay, what what exactly did he mean for them? So how do I apply it to my life? This is simply called genre analysis. Genre analysis. When you understand the genre of revelation, oriental apocalyptic literature, all of a sudden, you don't try to make it mean certain things that only apply to our era. As I've said throughout this series, you'll be surprised to find out how much of this book makes sense when we do not try to make it something it is not. 
This is simply called a principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. It has basic principles to it, and one of them is is to understand the figurative use of symbolism and metaphor that revelation is full of. The genre of revelation is the first reality you have to accept when you look at revelation, and that is that has symbols that in that day, seven meant something. It meant perfection. Twelve meant something. It meant the people of God. Six, six, six meant something. It meant evil. And remember, this is probably the simplest way to understand it. The symbolism of revelation does not mean what it says. It means what it means. And when you come to revelation, it's really cool. And you say, wait a minute, my marriage is struggling. Why should I matter? Why should I be concerned about this? You'll see in a minute. When you apply the questions of genre analysis, am I reading poetry, am I reading history, am I reading a letter to a group someplace that's supposed to instruct them, it's didactic, literal literature, or am I reading some proverbs or reading some promises? When you apply genre analysis to this, all of a sudden you're able to see these impressionist paintings that John gives of Jesus and the reality of heaven then, now, and what is to come, and all of a sudden Jesus is unveiled to you. I'm, I'm just telling you, Yes, I know you don't have a Bible college degree, and I know you to, to, to be truly a wise teacher, you got to have a seminary degree, right? That's what we think. No, you don't. No, you don't. Some of you grew up in traditions where lay people can't read the Bible. Any of you grew up in a tradition like that? That is, that is not true. The Bible was written in what is called Koine Greek. There was classical Greek, which was high Greek. We would call it high, you know, high English. And then there was Koine or slang Greek. Do you know the Bible was written in slang Greek? It was written in, hey, Lon, what's up? It was written in just common idiom and language. And the people in that day would have understood the idiom that is used by John. And if you will just accept that and try not to make it mean what it says, but let it mean what it means... Jesus will be unveiled. Let's, let's, let's take this. Let's, say, let's imagine for a minute that you are a fighter in WWF. Okay, I want you to envision World Wrestling Federation fighter you are. And you're at the, you know, you're getting ready to have this fake wrestling match. And the other person says to you, I'm going to kill you. In a sport, using that term loosely, where hyperbole is used. Can we all agree that hyperbole is used in WWF? Can everybody agree with that? Right? In hyperbole, if, if the opponent says to you in WWF, which is not really a real fight, not really a real sport, and hyperbole is used, if your opponent says, I'm going to kill you, does that person mean that literally? Or do they mean it symbolically? Well, you know, based on the genre of hyperbole within WWF, they don't mean that literally. Now, Let's say that you are a character in one of the five greatest movies ever made, The Godfather. How many of you have never seen The Godfather? Raise your hand. You are pitiful, okay? (laughs) Why have you never seen The Godfather? And I'm the only pastor in America right now recommending that people see The Godfather. I guarantee you that. Let's say you're a character, and Don Corleone says, I'm going to kill you. Now, you're a character in The Godfather, and you know Don Corleone is the, is the Godfather. He's the boss. When Don Corleone says, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. If he says, I'm going to kill you, does he mean that literally? Yes, he does. 
If he says, I'm, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes, he doesn't mean that you're going to be curled up in an aquatic place with Nemo and Dory, okay? That's not what he means. He means that part symbolically because what is he, what is, he's using metaphor to say, you're going to have some cement shoes tonight, my friend. You're going to, I'm going to kill you. He means, he means it literally, and I'm going to kill you. And he means it metaphorically. Sleeping with the fishes doesn't mean cozy aquatic conditions. It means you're as good as dead. What, is, what have you just done? You've just applied genre analysis. That's what you've done. You've just applied, wait a minute, you've got to know, WWF, hyperbole. Don Corleone, business. Business, right? You're going to the mattresses with this whole deal. And if you don't know what that means, then just, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel sorry for you that you don't understand what going to the mattresses means. So let's look at, let's look at one that applies to your life, and it has to do with sweet and sour, okay? So let's just jump ahead to Revelation chapter 10. And in Revelation 10, there are these seven scrolls that are being unveiled. Seven unveilings, revelations of movements of God. And look what John says. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. The sea is often used of the place of unknown. The sea often is the symbolism of evil. And on the land, that which is known. So you see the symbolism in Revelation. And, and right here, the angel is over the sea and the land. God is in charge. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And this is different from the scroll that you would have seen in chapter 5. This is the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. Now do you think, just real quick, going back, what did we just learn about as a principle of hermeneutics? Genre analysis. Do you think he literally means for John to eat a scroll? No, this is symbolism. He's in the spirit. He's in the heavenly realm. He's in the realm of the non-material, beyond time and space. And he says, I want you in this unveiling to take it and eat it. Now, it's really cool because all throughout Scripture, we see this imagery of God's words being like food. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. We just sang a song really based in Psalm 34. Psalm 119, the word of the Lord is like honey to my taste. Honey was an expensive delicacy in that day. Honey to my taste. What did Jesus say? You don't live on bread alone, physical bread, but what do you live on? The very words that proceed from the mouth of God. So all throughout Scripture, we've given this imagery of the words of God are like food to the soul. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. Skyline chili. It will be like skyline chili. It'll taste great, and then a little bit later, you'll be going, oh. <laughs> I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, John, you must preach again, prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Here's really what John is telling, what angel is telling John and John is telling us. There's a word that summarizes this 
in Colossians 3.16. I mentioned this in Weekend Hangover last week because I remember one time I spent about three, one, three months just, just, just focusing on this one verse. That's, you're allowed to do that, by the way. You don't have to, have to read a bunch of the Bible all the time. Sometimes you can just camp on one and just chew on that one. And I remember a few years ago, I just, I just stayed in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, don't treat God's word in your life like a fast food. You go to church, you get your two pounds of God to go in the drive-thru, and you go. But live a life that allows the words of God to go into your being. It's really interesting. The Hebrew word for meditate literally was the same word, and same word used of a cow chewing the cud. You ever seen a cow chewing the cud where the cow Chews, swallows, regurgitates, chews some more, swallows, regurgitates. We're talking about upset stomachs and puking today. What did you learn about in church today? But it is, that's the word for meditate. And, and when, you, when you allow God's words to dwell in you richly, you're, you're, chewing, on, you're chewing on it. You're, you're just saying, let me absorb this into my being. Now, now, now look what the angel's telling John. John, the message that I'm giving you is good news. It's good news. The, the, the death has been arrested. He holds the keys of death and life. The Alpha and the Omega is in charge. Sins have been forgiven. Symbolically speaking, all who surrender to Christ are washed in the detergent blood of the Lamb. They, they're cleansed. The truest thing about you is the purity of Christ. That's what's amazing. Isn't that good news? That is sweet. That is so sweet. But there's a sour part to it. John says, you're going to speak judgment into the nations. Those who have obstinately rebelled against God are going to be judged. The meaning of life is not that it ends. The meaning of life is that there's accountability at the end. It matters. Now think about this. We live in a culture today where progressive Christianity even wants, just the good stuff. Just the love stuff, just the good stuff. And love being all the nicey-nicey parts. And there is this part of Scripture that is sour. Like, if you don't cry over judgment, then there's something wrong with you. I often, often think that the reason that Christians get mad at non-Christians so much is there are so many Christians in this country who think, well, I've given up all that fun, and if I'm, get, if I'm going to give up all that fun, and they're not going to, they're, they're not getting into heaven. They're, they're not getting into heaven. Because I gave up all this fun, and there's this... There's this embracing of the sour reality of the gospel in a way that is really sour in and of itself. And yet, and yet, and yet, there's something here, friends. I will tell you this, there's something here about when you can trust God through the sweet and the sour realities of life, the gospel, marriage, sport, there's nothing that'll beat you. Once you can embrace both of those realities, you see, in this country right now, we don't want anything but the sweet. It's like, we don't want anything but the sweet. Uh, I don't know if you saw this past week, the the professional golfer, Justin Thomas, I was told, uh, under his breath, uttered uh, a slur, which he shouldn't have done. But he was sponsored by Ralph Lauren Polo. Before he got off the course, they had canceled his contract. Now, 
that aside, I was with Austin when, this, when we were talking about this, and Austin said something profound. He said, you know, a world that doesn't leave room for repentance is a bad world. And we don't, we don't have any room for repentance anymore, do we? Like, see, you mess up, you're done. We're going to cancel you, you're done. You know why? It's because we don't want to embrace, I believe, that there are these sour realities on every side of the equation that when you can embrace that. How many of you got married and you thought, man, this, uh, the smell of Chanel number five is in the air and it is always going to be in the air. And then, as I always say at weddings, then one day you wake up and the scent of Bengay is in the air. I mean, things just aren't <laughs> the same as they used to be on the wedding day. And, and all of a sudden, marriage is not just this sweet Cinderella part two, right? It's Cinderella part two that was never made. She actually has bad breath. He has body odor. And, but once a couple embraces, there are sour realities to trying to merge two people who are very different. Once you can embrace that sour reality and let Christ be absorbed into that, there is an amazing grace that gets discovered from that. It's an amazing grace. I told you in part about my walk down memory lane through my my scrapbook. What I didn't tell you is that I can tell you when... I was able to embrace the sweet and sour of basketball. It was my sophomore year in college when God won and he broke me. And I said, I'm going to play basketball, but I'm not going to play it for me anymore. I'm going to play it for you. That what matters is the, the name on the front of my jersey. I was at a Christian college, not the name on the back. And I... I'm not saying, that, you know, give your life to Jesus and your batting average will go up. And what I am saying is that when you are able to let Christ dwell richly within the sweet and sour realities of your life, you don't need to panic. You don't need to give up. You don't need to wonder, what have I done wrong? You just need to let him do his thing. And he won't waste sweet nor sour. This is a real simple faith lesson, but it's so critical. To grow in my faith, I need to devour the sweet and sour truths of Scripture because it teaches me to deal with the sweet and sour realities of life. We were doing a young life, an urban young life fundraiser a few months ago with Coach Tressel, Coach Jim Tressel. And one of the questions I, I was, I was uh, like emceeing the event, and one of the things I asked Coach Tressel is, what is the biggest thing? He's the president of Youngstown State University now. I said, what's the biggest thing that you see in incoming freshmen? And you know what he said? They are totally incapable of dealing with stress. If I lay a generic, they are totally incapable. You know what that is about? That's about a bunch of people who have been raised Honey, we'll protect you from sour. And what ends up happening when you can't embrace sours, you don't grow up. And there are a lot of adults who come to faith thinking 
oh, this will just be Jesus is my whoopee. And his job is to make my life comfortable. And my job is to be happy. When in reality, he said, if you will not take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be one of my apprentices. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He said, the person who defends me to the end, I will take care of them. But the person who bails on me at the first sign of trouble, they will lose what it is that they've been given. It's stunning. And so the question that I want to throw to you, Southbrook, very, very simple question, very simple question, is will you, would you do this today? Would you feed, which means read without speed, that's what that means. Like whenever you devour a book, it's because you just, you want it all. Would you do this? Would you just start as a practice for all of life, feeding on the word of God, even when it tastes sour? Because if you do, now we've, now we've got something going. Now we have something going. Grab a copy of Jesus Calling. Start there. Read a chapter from Revelation this week. Read chapter 10. Read chapter 19. Read chapter 1. And just stay there. And let the word of God dwell in you richly. Read parts that you don't like. And absorb those. Because when you can do that, there's nothing on the sweet and the sour parts of life that will take you down. To he who is faithful, that person will overcome. Amen? Simple, but let's pray it in. Father, right now we pray that you would take this very simple lesson, the sweet and sour realities of life, but also the gospel. Before the gospel is good news, it's bad news. It's bad news. A culture that we live in of relativism, and I'm okay, you're okay, nobody needs repentance, nobody even has the room for repentance, doesn't leave room for how God works through sweet and sour. And I pray that this church, as we go out into our regions and our cities and our communities and we live and we are married, and we work, and we have jobs, and we go to school, and we play sports, and, and we have art, and all the things that we do, that, that the reality is we've accepted a sweet and sour reality. And Christ is in it all, and over it all, and through all. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He holds the keys of life and death in everything. And we surrender to him right now. We surrender to Christ. We don't play, work, learn, perform for ourselves anymore. Through all the sweet and sour, we are to bring glory and honor to the Christ who makes it all happen. Everybody in Jesus' name who wants that with vigor and passion said, Amen. I agree. All right, let's go. See you next week.